This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. So, you like the gumshoe shows, do you? Okay, we've got a good one lined up for you tonight. Nick Carter, Master Detective. It was a mutual radio crime drama based on the tales of the fictional private detective Nick Carter from Street and Smith's dime novels and pulp magazines. Nick Carter first came to radio as The Return of Nick Carter, a reference to the character's pulp origins, but the title was soon changed to Nick Carter, Master Detective. A veteran radio dramatist, Farron Fraser, wrote most of the scripts. This guy was really busy. During the 30s and 40s, Fraser was a radio scriptwriter, notably for Little Orphan Annie. Uh, dramatic and thriller programs with scripts by Fraser include Suspense, Lights Out, and Nick Carter, Master Detective, the show we're about to hear tonight. Another busy guy was Lon Clark, who starred in the title role of Nick Carter. He was also a familiar voice on such programs as the weekday serial Mummy and the Men, the frontier serial adventure Wilderness Road, the quiz show Quick as a Flash, to mention just a few. And he played opposite such performers as Fred Allen, Art Carney, Helen Hayes, and Orson Welles. He also had a turn strutting the boards on Broadway, replacing Jason Robarts in the 1956 Broadway production of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night. Background music for Nick Carter, Master Detective, supplied by organists Hank Silvern, Luke White, and George Wright. Patsy Bowen, Nick's assistant, was portrayed by Helen Choate until mid-1946, and then Charlotte Manson stepped into the role, that's who we'll hear in tonight's show, entitled Echo of Death. It's another case for that most famous of all manhunters, the detective whose ability at solving crime is unequaled in the history of detective fiction. Nick Carter, Master Detective. Tonight's curious adventure is... The Echo of Death. Or Nick Carter and the Phantom Clue. No, no, please. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. Hold him still. They're just like that. This has got to look right. No, I'll... I'll do anything you say. I'll forget everything I know. Only don't... All right. He's it. Now, come on. Hello? Yes, this is Nick Carter speaking. Case? What kind of case? Suspense. Well, that's hardly my line. Uh, 
Oh, I see. Yes. Yes. Yes, I understand. All right, expect us late this afternoon. You got that on the extension, Patsy? I should say so. Echo Valley Lodge, private amphibian plane waiting for you at the airport. Come at once, never mind the sea. <laughs> who is this Howard Manstead who tosses money around like confetti? A well-known millionaire sportsman, Patsy. But um, wouldn't it be more to the point to ask about the man who's disappeared? Oh, you mean James Thurlow, the columnist. Why, he's... He... Say, who is he, anyway? That's what you get about reading the financial pages of the paper, Patsy. Well, come along. We've got to find a taxi and get to the airport. Well, aren't we going to take anything with us? Oh, yes, of course. I was forgetting. I thought you were. I'll need my new dress. You want but... Scubby. Call him and tell him to meet us at the airport. He knows Thurlow. They write for the same paper. Well, aren't we going oh, to... Oh, and take... one other thing, Patsy. Bring along volume three of the encyclopedia, E to H. Scubby Wilson and volume three of an encyclopedia. That's just what a girl needs for a visit to a millionaire's hunting lodge. <laughs> Seldom visited because of its somewhat inaccessible location, Echo Valley is a natural freak of singular interest. I have friends you could say the same thing about, but the encyclopedia doesn't mention them. Quiet, Scabby. Let Patsy finish reading. Echo Valley is of great interest to scientists. Sounds occurring in certain areas of Echo Valley may be repeated as many as 13 times, echoing from cliff to cliff in gradually diminishing volume. Why do encyclopedias always use so many words to say so little? That's what I wonder about newspaper reporters sometimes, too. So we'll change the subject? <laughs> what else does it say? That's all. Well, that's no help. Thurlow certainly wasn't carried off by an echo. Oh, he's probably just lost in the woods. In any case, I don't see why Manstead insisted on you coming out to look for him, Nick. You're no Indian guide. Patsy, if Thurlow isn't found alive, it may cost the public millions. Millions? Well, he's just a columnist, isn't he? Just a columnist? He's the smartest financial reporter in New York. And Thurlow's more than just a reporter, Patsy. In the financial column he writes, he sometimes tips the authorities off to big stock swindles and other kinds of financial skullduggery. Right. It was Thurlow who broke open the Nemo Bank scandal three years ago and sent the whole board of directors to prison. And for some time, Patsy, Thurlow has been hinting in his column that he was on the verge of revealing some kind of tie-up between certain politicians and uh, one or two big operators that would rob the public of millions. Oh, then if anything happened to him now, before he's had a chance to tell anybody what he knew, the scheme would go through his schedule. Right. That's why he went to Echo Valley Lodge. Manstead, an old friend of his, invited him out so he could work in peace for a few weeks. Scubby. Huh? Is it true that Thurlow was on the verge of a nervous breakdown when he left? Oh, he was walking around in circles talking to himself, Nick. Hmm. He had almost all the dope he wanted, but he still hadn't got the name of the guy behind the whole scheme. He took along a whole bunch of records of stock transactions. He said they might give him the clue he needed. And, hey, look ahead of us. Echo Valley. It is, isn't it, Nick? No doubt of it, Patsy. But look, that isn't any echo flying toward us. A plane. Nick, it's a plane flying up out of Echo Valley. Yes. Yes, it's a private amphibian. I thought this plane of Manstead's was the only one in these parts. And the pilot's seen us. Huh. He's turning out of our line of flight. I suppose he wants to avoid us. I'll bet he doesn't want us to see his markings. He is trying to avoid us. Oh, pilot, swing over so we can get a look at that plane down there. Right, Mr. Carter. He knows we're trying to get closer to him. 
Look at him bank to avoid us. He's turned back. He's heading away from us now. A pilot. Overtake that plane if you can. Yes, Mr. Collins. Say, isn't that the Manstead hunting lodge down there, right on the edge of the lake? Yes, Cubby, it is. But we're not going to land until we get some idea what that plane's up to. Look, he's diving straight down now. He's going to try to get away underneath us. Oh, he'll never make it. Those private planes aren't built. His wing is breaking off. Couldn't take the strain. He's heading straight for the ground if he hasn't got a parachute. Oh, but he has. Look, he's jumping. And there goes his plane into the trees. Well, that was a narrow escape. He didn't have more than 500 feet of altitude. He's come down on the top of that tall pine. He's caught there. See, his parachute won't come loose. Yes. Well, we'll have to land and rescue him. Besides, I want to know why he was so anxious to avoid having his plane identified. Oh, pilot. Land in the lake and taxi up as close as possible to the place that fellow came down. steps. Oh, and they say exercise is good for you. Oh, there. There's his parachute. I think I can see him hanging among the branches. He's hurt or he'd call to us. Come on. His shroud lines are caught among the branches. I can see that much. Well, he's just, just dangling there. Yeah. Hey, you up there. Can you hear us? You all right? He doesn't answer. Look, I'll climb up and see if I can... No. What is it, Nick? Look at those shroud lines. They're wrapped around his neck. Look at the way his head is twisted to one side. Yes. His neck's broken. He's dead. What? Oh. When he landed in the tree, he got tangled in the lines. I wonder. Nick, what do you mean? Look down at your feet, Scubby. Huh? Cigarette butt. What? Somebody must have been here before us. Maybe. But its position makes me think the cigarette was smoked by him up there. But that's impossible, Nick. It's been just about an hour, Scubby, since he crashed. He knew we'd come after him. So if he was hurt and couldn't get out of his chute harness, what would be more natural than for him to smoke a cigarette and wait to be rescued? But he... he's dead? Because somebody reached him before we did. And murdered him. just wandered away yesterday morning and never returned. Hmm, I see, Mr. Manson. And you don't think this mysterious airplane we met just before we reached here has any connection with Thurlow's vanishing? Well, I don't see how it could. But then, as I said, I haven't the slightest idea where the plane could have come from or who was flying it. Yeah. Now, let's go over the facts again, if you don't mind. Oh, of course not. Thurlow arrived here a week ago? Yes, with his wife. I had them flown in in my plane. They had the lodge to themselves with my permanent housekeeper to look after them. And you arrived yesterday, in the middle of the afternoon. But Thurlow wasn't here when you arrived? No, he'd already gone out. He told his wife he was taking his revolver along and would take pot shots at the trees and rocks. So you never actually saw him? That's right. 
The woodsman I employed to look after the property asked me to come and examine some trees he wanted to cut down. About sundown, I got back to the lodge, and Thurlow still hadn't returned. Mrs. Thurlow was becoming worried. I ordered the floodlights we used for landing the plane at night, but he didn't show up. And then in the morning, you called me. Well, first I phoned the nearest bar stranger station. And after that, Mrs. Thurlow was so agitated, I had promised I'd send for you. Where is Mrs. Thurlow? I'd like to ask a few questions. Well, she's sleeping now. She was up all night, and this morning the housekeeper gave her a sleeping tablet. Shall we wake her? No, 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 no not just now. There's still an hour of daylight left. I'd like to take a look around outside. Perhaps I'll... I'll open it. Uh, Mr. Manstead. Johnny. What is it? His hat. We found it. Thurlow's hat? Where? Near the waterfall. Why, that's not far. It's only a mile from here. It's still light. Do you want to come with us and look for him, Mr. Carter? Yes, I think I do. Manstead, in that bush. But what in the world could Thurlow have been doing in here? This isn't a trail to the waterfall. It isn't a trail at all as far as I'm concerned. It's a jungle. It used to be a trail to an old one-room cabin, but there's no reason Thurlow would go there. Well, maybe if we yell, he'll hear us. He might be in there with a busted ankle or something. Go ahead and try, Scabby. Thurlow! Thurlow! Good gosh, will you listen to that? Well, that's one reason this is called Echo Valley. The cliffs around the waterfall down the trail make a perfect sounding board. Well, if he didn't hear that, he must be dead. If there's a cabin in there, we'd better take a look at it. Right. I don't see what in the world Thurlow could have come this way for, but maybe he did. Let's find out. Oh, there, between those two trees. See it? Oh, yes. It's only another 40 yards. Well, come on, then. Oh, Scubby, wait. Well, sure, Nick, what is it? That bare patch of ground there. Those footprints. Thurlow's footprints. You sure, Scubby? Sure. I've seen those pointed shoes of his too often not to recognize the footprints anyplace. Come on, Nick. Um, yes, yes. I'm coming. Thurlow's a tall man, isn't he, Scubby? He's a tall man like I'm Henry Ford. He's about five feet five. Why? I thought it... Well, never mind. There's the cabin. Gosh, it doesn't look as if it had been opened in years. Well, it hasn't that I know of. But there are Thurlow's footprints going right up to the door. And somebody's opened the door recently. Look at these broken spider webs around the door jamb. But it won't open now. Here, let me try. It ought to open without any trouble. Yeah, but it doesn't budge. <laughs> That's strange. Let's take a look through the window. The window's boarded over. The boards haven't been touched. I nailed the window up myself three years ago. Nobody came here since. And someone has come here. Thurlow. And he must be inside now. But the window hasn't been touched. And the door is barred on the inside. It looks bad. We'd better break the door down. Suppose we have old Johnny use his axe on it. That'll be quicker. Of course. Johnny, smash the door open for us. Stand back, please. That door was locked to stay locked. There it go. Yeah. That does it. It's open. You don't mind? I'd like to go in first. Of course. Uh, it's dark inside. Here, take my flashlight. Thanks. There he is. Follow. 
He's dead. He came here, bolted himself in, and shot himself with his own revolver. Yes, he's dead, all right. And it does look like suicide, doesn't it? Now, now, Mrs. Jim couldn't have killed himself, Mr. Carter. He couldn't have. I'm sorry, Mrs. Thurlow. I wouldn't intrude on your grief if it wasn't necessary. Now, first of all, what kind of mood was your husband in yesterday morning just before he disappeared? He was very agitated. Agitated? Well, do you know any reason why he should have been? I think he just found a clue to the identity of the man he was seeking. The one behind this plot to upset the stock market. Did he say who it was? No. No, he just said he'd stumbled on a clue. And he was so shocked he could hardly believe the evidence. That was why he went out into the woods. He wanted to be alone to think the matter through. Perhaps his notes will tell us what he found. No, I thought of that, Nick. After Mrs. Seller woke up and I talked to her while you and Scubby were out with Mr. Manstead... We tried to read his notes, but they're in some kind of a shorthand that nobody can read but himself. I can make out a few words here and there, but not enough to help. Well, we'll have another try at it later. Uh, please go on, Mrs. Thurlow. Well, that's almost all, Mr. Carter. Jim went out about ten in the morning. I stayed here in my room reading. About half an hour later, I thought I heard a shot. All of a sudden, I was terribly frightened. Frightened? Of what? I don't know. It was just a feeling. Then, then I heard the far-off echo of somebody hammering. It was... It sounded like somebody hammering down the lid of a coffin. And I'm positive it meant that Jim was dead. Probably someone chopping down a tree, she heard me. Anyway, she went back to her reading and forgot about it. Then around one, Nancy had thrown from the village, this little town about ten miles from the hill, for Johnny to come for him in the station wagon. Manstead phoned. But didn't he fly in by plane yesterday? Seems not. The plane was in New York getting a new propeller, so he took the night train. Is that so? Anyway, Johnny went to meet him. He got here about 2.30. The rest of the story is just the way he told it to us. Nick Thurlow must have killed himself. It just isn't any other answer. I wonder, Patsy. I wonder. Hello? Yes, speaking. Did you get the dope I wanted? He was? And the plane? Then check every airfield within 50 miles of the city. Yes, I know it's a big order, but somebody's playing this game for big stakes. No, that's all. Call me back when you've learned something. Oh, uh, oh hello, Carter. I, I didn't know anybody was here in the library. I took the liberty of phoning New York. I was trying to check on that mysterious plane that we saw crash yesterday afternoon. I see. Did you learn anything? Nothing yet. You know, I have a theory about that plane, Carter. I'd be interested to hear it, Mr. Manstead. Well, we're only a hundred miles from the border, and in the past, planes engaged in smuggling aliens into this country have landed in this region. Now, I'm willing to wager this chap, who was so anxious to avoid being seen, was engaged in doing something like that. Hmm. Certainly sounds plausible. Nick! 
Oh, uh, yes, Gubby. Oh, there you are. Oh, top of the morning to you, Mr. Manstead. Good morning. Say, I was looking for the two of you. Or a stranger Thompson, a two of his men are down at the landing waiting in your launch, Mr. Manstead. They want to get started down the lake to bring in the body of that flyer who, uh, <clears throat> who was so unlucky when he bailed out of his plane yesterday. Uh, of course. Uh, you're coming with us, aren't you, Carter? Uh, yes, indeed. I'm just as interested as you are to see if your theory turns out to be right. Oh, what about Patsy? Shall I go find her? No, no, Scubby. She's staying here in the lodge with Mrs. Thurlow. They're going to spend the morning going over Thurlow's notes, trying to decipher them. Well, let's get going. I want to get back in time to phone a story to my paper. Uh, I was afraid it's no use, mister. Please, just call me Patsy. It's just impossible to read these notes of Jim's Patsy. They're not only in his own shorthand, but... Most of them are in code, too. Here's something that seems as if it might mean something. See, it says, I can H-B it. H-B. Mm-hmm. Hardly believe. I can hardly believe it. Yeah, of course that's what it means. And here's some more. It's clearer. Shall I tell Nancy what I know? The next line, better not. Instead, must get back to New York. Well, that's clear enough. But the next line, my life, M-B-N-D. That doesn't mean anything to me. My life, M-B-N-D. My life may be in danger. And then there's just one last sentence that he never finished. To think that the one man in the world. That's all there is. Oh, oh, if you don't finish. That the one man in the world. Who do you suppose he could have meant? I can't even make a guess. The one man. Mrs. Thurlow. What's that? Mrs. Thurlow, we're going to go and take a look at that cabin now while all the others are away. I have a theory and we're going to find some evidence to prove it. It has to be there. It just has to be. Nick, my friend. Hey, what's troubling you? You've been sitting out here on this rock for an hour ever since we got back, looking mean enough to bite your grandmother. Scubby, that poor devil of an aviator whose body we brought in was murdered. And Thurlow was murdered. And I can't prove it. But, Nick, couldn't you be wrong? The aviator certainly looked like a natural accident. And Thurlow, if I ever saw a case that looked more like suicide, well, I don't know where it was. Well, that's just it. The aviator, I can explain. Someone slipped through the woods, reached him before we did, climbed the tree he was caught in, and strangled him with the shroud lines in his parachute while pretending to help free him. But, Thurlow, his own footprints leading into the cabin. The window boarded over and the door bolted on the inside. If somebody killed him, well, how did they get out? I don't know, Scubby. It isn't possible. And it was done. I'm going to break the... Hey, Scubby, what's that in your hand? Oh, just a shiny new nail I picked up somewhere. Somebody must have been fixing something. A nail? And Mrs. Thurlow said she heard the echo of hammer blows the morning her husband died. Yeah, said they sounded like somebody hammering down the lid of a coffin. <laughs> they sure have imagination. But that's just what she did here. Huh? She heard the echoes of somebody nailing down the lid of a coffin. <laughs> Thank you.
must be a clue. There must be. But we've been all over the cabin inside and out a dozen times now, Patsy. If there was anything here, we'd have found it. Mrs. Thurlow, somehow your husband was murdered here. And his body left inside this cabin so it would look like suicide. I'm going to find out how the murderer got out, leaving the door and window bolted, or or die. I'm afraid you're much more likely to die, Patsy. Oh, oh Mr. Mensch. Yes, Mr. Mann's dead. After we returned to the lodge and I learned the two of you had disappeared in this direction, I thought I'd better find out what you were up to. You? You killed my husband. Of course he did. Who else could your husband have meant by the one man in the world he'd never have believed guilty? But, but he was Jim's friend. That's what he wanted you to think. He pretended to be a friend so he could always keep checking what your husband learned. He invited you both here so he could commit murder if he decided it was necessary. Oh. A very interesting theory. But I'm afraid I can't give you a chance to tell it to anyone else. Johnny. Right here, Mr. Manstead. Come inside and close the door. What are you going to do to us? He thinks he's going to kill us. He hasn't got that gun in his hand for fun. Johnny, the old mine shaft is close by. Now, if these two ladies out walking had the misfortune to stumble into it, it would be very tragic, wouldn't it? Lots of people fall down old mine shafts. So they do. And I'm afraid another such accident is about to happen. You can't get away with it, Mr. Manstead. Nick Carter won't let you. Oh, well, perhaps even clever Mr. Carter may have to have an accident. Help me silence him, Johnny. Quickly. No, no, please. Quiet. No. Quiet, I say. <laughs> All right, now, Johnny, knock them both on the head and keep them quiet. All right, Let Manstead. Let go of her. You, Carter. Nick, look out. He's got... Drop it, Manstead, or I... Johnny, kill him. <laughs> Johnny, put down that axe or I'll shoot. Yes, sir. I'm afraid so. That's it. Either of you hurt? No, Nick. Came just in time. But how? How did I know Manstead was a murderer? I knew that from the time we found this cabin. But it took an echo to prove it. The echo, Mrs. Thurlow, that you said sounded like someone hammering. But, but I don't understand. Scubby's bringing Ranger Thompson. As soon as they get here, I think I'll be able to clear up a lot of mysteries. <laughs> Manstead was behind the plot that Thurlow uncovered. He invited Thurlow here in order to find out what he knew. Discovered Thurlow had evidence that would tell him the truth, and therefore decided to eliminate Thurlow. But, Mr. Carter, Manstead didn't get here until after Thurlow was dead. He came by train. And... Oh, Ranger Thompson's right, Nick. He appeared to come by train. Actually, he flew in the night before, in a plane whose pilot was used to taking big fees for keeping his mouth shut. That was the plane that we saw crash. Something delayed it from leaving in time to avoid us. And in the pilot's effort to keep away from us, well, we all know what happened. But Nick, why was the pilot murdered? That was Johnny's work. As soon as Thurla saw the crash, he sent Johnny by a secret trail through the woods to make sure the pilot didn't live to talk. Otherwise, his murder scheme would have collapsed. Isn't that right, Johnny? Yes, sir. So Manstead flew here the night before he murdered Thurlow. In the morning when Thurla left the house, he and Johnny waylaid him. Is that it, Nick? That's it, Patsy. They brought him to the cabin here. Manstead put on his victim's shoes and made a trail of footprints. I see. Then they killed Thurlow, put his shoes back on him, and left him in the locked cabin. A clear case of suicide. But Manstead made a mistake there. His footprints were too far apart. They were the steps of a tall man. When Scubby said Thurlow was a short man, I began to suspect. Well, it certainly does sound plausible, Mr. Carter. But you still got to convince me Manstead could get out of that cabin... 
and leave the door barred from the inside. Make it good, Nick. Johnny knows the answer. You all remember that Mrs. Thurlow said she heard the echo of hammer blows. You mean she really did hear someone hammering? Exactly. This is a small cabin with a roof lightly nailed in place. Now look up there. What's that flashing in the sun? Roofs like nail heads. Somebody's hammered new nails into that roof all along this side. Nick, is that the clue I was looking for? That's the clue you were looking for. Scubby and I saw it yesterday, but we weren't smart enough to know what it meant. Here, I'll take Johnny's axe and push the blade in under the eaves and pry upward like that. What's the... The whole roof's lifting up. Well, blow me down. Then Sid and Johnny pried up the flimsy roof before they killed Thurlow. Then leaving the door pod, they climbed out. And Johnny nailed the roof back into place. Right. So they were hammering the lid on the coffin, so to speak. Thurlow's coffin. And due to the curious echoing qualities of the rocks, the sound carried to the lodge. And Mrs. Thurlow heard it. I didn't think it meant anything until I noticed the nail Scubby picked up someplace. The nail Johnny must have dropped. And then I remembered the hammering sound Mr. Thurlow spoke of. And suddenly the whole thing was clear. Well, it sure wouldn't have been clear to me if you hadn't explained it, Mr. Carter. I certainly wouldn't ever have worked it out with just an echo for a clue. Oh, but that was an unusual echo. Remember how cleverly it answered? And when it comes to answers, Scotty, Nick Carter is the man who gets them. This was another strange experience of Nick Cotter called The Echo of Death, or Nick Cotter and the Phantom Clue. The curious adventures of Nick Cotter, Master Detective, are brought to you every Monday night at 9.30 Eastern Wartime. We'll let Nick himself tell you about next week's story. What'll it be about, Nick? I call it Death Across the Tracks. It began with the murder of a detective. A railroad detective who lived in the station alongside the tracks. He was working on a case, but he had it only partly solved when he was murdered. And I picked it up from there. I'll say you did, Nick. You almost picked up a few bullets into the bargain the way the victim did. (laughs) When you called it death across the tracks, you were right in more ways than one. This sounds more and more intriguing. And how did it wind up, Nick? Well, we'll tell you that next week. But I can say this much. I had a stroke of luck. Nick always calls it luck when he uses foresight. Good night, folks. (laughs) Yes, good night, folks. And good night, Patsy and Nick. In tonight's strange adventure, Nick Carter was impersonated by Lon Clark. Patsy was impersonated by Helen Choate. Original music was played by Lou White. The entire production was under the direction of Jock McGregor. Stay tuned for The Lives of Harry Lyme, starring Orson Welles, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Orson Welles, along with the zither music supplied by Anton Karras, as we listen in on another episode of The Lives of Harry Lyme. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme, the fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, 
with Zither Music by Anton Kara. This is a love story. But don't worry, there's action in it. Arab chieftains, international gangsters, and a buried treasure. But essentially, this is a tale about one of the times I fell in love. I don't laugh. I'm not the first man that happened to. Or the third man, either. Wells is Harry Lyme, the third man in An Old Moorish Custom. Valerie. Valerie Darouge. That was her name. She lived in North Africa, claimed descent from one of the old Barbary pirates, and looked like the direct and miraculous offspring of a couple of the more personable Greek gods. Maybe she was at that. But her official grandfather was old Armand Darouche, owner of an ancient fortified estate a couple of hundred kilometers inland from Algiers. I'd heard stories about him, of his great wealth, and what was more important, its strange source. So the first thing I did when I got into town was to wangle an invitation for a gala at the governor's mansion. I knew Mademoiselle Darouche would be there. She was. I figured one thing would lead to another, and it did. Four weeks and seven meetings later, Valerie and I were dancing together at our rendezvous in the ballroom of the luxurious Granada Hotel, overlooking the Mediterranean. Harry, you dance so wonderfully. I float. Honey, dancing with you is like coming in with a tide. Oh, oh you are a poet, Harry. <laughs> oh, Shelley, not so close, please. Madame Plantage, she is watching. Yes, Madame Plantage. Did we have to bring her along? But certainly. I could not travel to the city alone, not even for a visit merely to the shops. You've got plenty of protection without her, it seems to me. That giant Sudanese of yours and the red fez and the baggy pants. Oh, but Ali is only my chauffeur. This is not your America, Chevy. Here the chaperone is also necessary for the unmarried girl of good family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go out in the balcony and watch the sun go down. We haven't had a chance to be alone. Not once since we met. <laughs> but certainly... If you visit Barbarossa again, Harry, perhaps I could arrange for Madame Plantage to occupy herself. And your grandfather, the seigneur? Perhaps it will be a day when he is out to inspect the flocks. Mm. Or what is left of them. Those flocks of sheep. There is hobby, is that, that the idea? Hobby? Well, I don't know. It seems difficult somehow to think of your aristocratic old grandfather as a farmer. But, Chéri, he is much more. At Barbarossa, he is king. He is emperor. Yeah, it certainly looks the part. He might be the very incarnation of that old Barbary corset who founded your family, Arouge Barbarossa. Is that what it's called? Oh, you know about us, Harry? Oh, sure, honey. I read up on it. Arouge was the greatest of the Moorish pirates. Huh? He was no more but a Greek-turned Muslim. Oh, yeah? His beard was red like the blood on his hands. 
So after 450 years, an ancestor who was cursed by God and man becomes a romantic figure. Droll, no? Oh, Harry. Yes? What are you thinking? Well, I was thinking how perfectly beautiful you are and how much I love you. Oh, Harry, if you only make bouquets with words, no, no, don't. That is more than a verbal posy, darling. Oh, no, no, Sherry. No, no, don't. Don't embrace me. But if you love me... Please, it will not be easy. What do you mean? My grandpa, the senor, I owe him too much. He and I, we, we are the last of the Darus. Yes, I know this. He but... has plans for me to live in Paris for a while, a term at the Sorbonne, a season in Rome, in Athens... We can and... do all that now on a, on a long, wonderful honeymoon. But I can't disregard him. Since my parents are dead, I am all he has left. But if I spoke to him, wouldn't he think of your happiness? Give his consent? I, I, I don't know. Supposing I drive up to Barbarossa tomorrow and ask him. Well, he he will ask questions. Foolish ones, you may think. Such as? Such as, who is your family? What are your politics? Oh, no need to worry, honey. I'm like a pair of socks, neither right nor left. Oh, my dear, do not joke with compare. For him it is most serious. Yes, I know. But you will back me up, won't you? Yes. Mademoiselle. Oh, oh yes, Ali. Ah, your genie. Did you rub a lamp or something? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Madame Plantage, a dit qu'il faut partir maintenant. Oui, je viens tout de suite. I must go, darling. I left the hotel and threaded my way through the streets toward the little apartment in the European quarter that I'd rented when I first arrived. The twilight was sowing stars in the sky. And I heard footsteps overtaking me and looked down at the stout, pink-cheeked little man in a baggy alpaca suit and fuzzy fedora. He kept pace, looking up at me with glossy, inquisitive eyes. Monsieur Lyme. Yes? Uh, permit me to introduce myself. He drew a wallet from his pocket and flipped it open. The identity card beneath its plastic shield stared up at me. Pierre Jules Charon, police detective. You remain in Algiers much longer. A week or so, perhaps. Why? The length of your stay is a compliment to our city, monsieur. Oh. oh. Well, I've always felt that you can't really know a place unless you live there for a while. True, true. But uh, when you stopped over in Palermo, monsieur... Palermo? Yes, just before sailing for Algiers. Did you meet there one calling himself Pierre Dubois? Dubois? Only his name is not Dubois, monsieur. It is Mario Marteau. Oh? What's he done? Many things, monsieur, including murder. He fled Algiers some time ago. His trail was picked up at Palermo. But would he be likely to return to Algiers? Evidently he has. A British art dealer has identified his picture as one of several bandits who tortured and robbed him last week. I see. A dangerous man, monsieur. Mm. We think perhaps he is a lieutenant of El Sikina. El... uh, who? El Sikina, a Bedouin outlaw. One of our local gangster leaders. If it occurs that you see Mario Marteau again... I'll give you a ring, you can be sure. A ring? Uh, on the telephone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Merci, merci. So I waddled away into the gathering twilight. How many pieces of my past did Duggar? That port passport, detected with a pair of surety. But no, no, it's, uh, he'd have picked me up for sure if he had. Or was this another one of those cat and mouse games? Couldn't tell. 
Went on to my apartment. When I got there and put my key in the lock, it refused to turn. The door was already unlocked. Come on in, Ami. Do not just stand there and stare. Mario. What are you doing here? Elsikina's treasury is getting low. It was necessary to get money at once. Oh. He is getting impatient with you, Harry. Impatient? You know, just stop me on the street, a police agent. Asking questions about you. Mm. Tell me something now. new. Or perhaps I will. That legend you told me in Palermo, you know, about Arouge Barbarossa bearing a billion francs worth of gold cups and things like that. In it cave. is no legend. Maybe not. Anyway, I did some research in the government library. So? Arouge Barbarossa actually captured a galleon back in 1504, which the Pope had sent from Genoa, loaded with gold dust and wine for the use of the church. He was pursued by warships and hid his loot in a cave on the coast somewhere between Algiers and Bougie. There used to be a legend that Arouge and his crew returned to the cave once every year. Rising from hell, you know, to celebrate their capture and toast their loot and sacramental wine. Now, wine, eh? Yes, an old Moorish custom, no the doubt. The Koran does not permit Muslims to drink, my friend. Haruj was a Greek variety. His courses wrote their own Koran. I am right. not interested in fairy tales. Well, neither am I, Mario. According to the records, the galleon Haruj captured was loaded with newly mined gold dust for the goldsmiths of Civitavecchia. There's no mention of Finnish gold articles. I do not care a sou what the records say. All I know is what I see now. Old Armand Arouche this past year has sold numerous antiques of pure gold to dealers. The Englishman we robbed had a 16th century cup he bought from Darouche okay. just two weeks okay, ago. Okay, okay, you just leave it to me. I'll find out soon enough just where the stuff is hidden. Good. You have just 24 hours. What? If you still have not secured the necessary information, Elsa Kina will take steps to obtain it himself. Meaning just what? Meaning he may have to visit Barbarossa personally. I see. And as for you, Harry, your services will be dispensed with permanently. I am sure you understand. Yes, yes, I think I understand. <laughs> The sun was high when I woke up the next morning. I dressed carefully, hired a limousine, an expensive-looking one, and drove out from Algiers toward the ancient estate of Barbarossa. I pulled up before the villa of Signor Armand Darouche. It was broad and sprawling. There were narrow embrasures for windows. The old house was like a lonely fortress in the blazing heat. I'd expected Valerie to meet me at the door, but... Instead, a silent Arab servant bowed me in. Monsieur Lyon, please come in. Ah, oh, Monsieur Darouche. It's uh, very good to find you at home, sir. I was I was hoping to speak to you. Ah, uh, yes, you? yes. Uh, your granddaughter and <clears throat> your granddaughter and I, Signor. Is... But of course, your charming campaign to win her hand. Did you imagine I would not wonder who you are? That I would not take the trouble to find out? Find out what? I, I told you all you about did? it. And an excellent story it was. But the police this morning have told a story that is quite different. Police? Your record, monsieur. Algeria does not welcome such as you. Ali! A door opened, the other end of the room, and the giant Sudanese stepped in, red fez, baggy pants and all. This time, however, something new had been added. A gay bandolier of cartridges and a rifle. A rifle whose black muzzle stared at me as the old man pocketed his automatic and turned to a telephone on a nearby table. I will arrange for you a police escort back to Algiers, monsieur. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Ah, oh. l'appareil ne fonctionne pas. 
The telephone service will no doubt improve itself later. In the meantime, Ali will convey you to a guest room suitable for you. Listen, uh, if, if I've made any mistakes in the past, it's... it's well, well, after all, none of us are perfect. Huh. But I, I do love your granddaughter, monsieur, and I have information of the utmost importance for you. I, I didn't want to alarm her, but I've uncovered a plot. Uh, a plot? It's true. I swear it's true. Elsie Kina thinks you've discovered a great treasure buried by a room El Barbarossa. What? It's fantastic, of course, but I... call. So that is your game. Now, wait. Uh... A spy for a Bedouin gangster coming to my home, making love no, to no, my No, 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 listen to me. For your sake, El is no friend of mine. He may raid Barbarossa this very night. Ah, what tale is this? You expect me to believe well, you? you'd better believe me. If it were the truth, which I doubt, why should you warn me? What do you expect to get out of this? Your friendship. Ah, my friendship. Plus, monsieur, naturally, there's a plus. Plus a nominal percentage of the loot left by your illustrious ancestor. Ali, je perds patience. Take him out before I kill him. Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. Orson Welles, as the third man, continues with an old Moorish custom. The guest room in which Ali locked me featured primarily an iron door, naked stone walls, and a single barred window. The hours pass. The shadows lengthened, and nothing whatever happened except that I got thirsty. Was the old devil going to keep me here until I died from thirst? Surely he'd gotten his blasted call through to Algiers by now. The police should have been here long ago. Of course, if he hadn't, if the telephone line was still out, then I knew, of course. El Sakina, he and his raiders, they... Cut it, preparing the attack. They'd stormed the gate, killed the guards, and... and now here they came. Bullets came through my window, ricocheting from wall to wall. Sooner or later, I knew, one would make a billiard shot that would knock me into a side pocket. But, finally, the firing slackened. grew still. Valerie. You warned Grandfather, but he did not believe you. You said you loved and me. And you thought that was a lie, too, huh? After what the police told about you, what else could I think? But if you are not lying about your love... Valerie, you know I wasn't. Then take this rifle, Harry. Help us defend the house. <laughs> well, what is so funny? You're asking me to prove my love by getting myself killed. Okay, honey, give me the gun. If I'm taken alive, I'm, 
I'm finished anyway. We picked our way through the darkened rooms and corridors, stepping over dead bodies. The big Sudanese lay half-crouched beside an embrasure. He whirled as we entered. No, no, Ali, tout va bien. Better point that rifle the other way, lad. I'm on your side. Valerie, are you two all who are left? No, my grandfather, he's on guard by a window on the other side of the house, but he is wounded. This way. Armand Durouche lay in the darkness beside a low embrasure. He turned on his side to look at us. He came in. Dim moonlight revealed his shirt front, dark with blood. Monsieur Lime, I have taken the desperate choice. I have no other. If you love my granddaughter, you will aid to obtain her safety. How? I have here... Uh, uh, can you reach it? On the floor. Yes? Uh, oui. Uh, parchment. Very old. Just what? What is it? A map. I took it from its hiding place a little while ago to burn it. There beside you, on the floor, a small piece of candle. Light it. There. The map of the treasure, out of a tale for children. Then it's true. Oui. The smaller part remains where it has been for over 400 years with the curse of God upon it. If you love Valérie, you can buy her life with it and yours. You are clever, Lime. You can bargain with Elsikina. Save Valérie from those swine. These symbols, I, I don't understand. I will, I will tell you their meaning. First, swear on your salvation that you will keep faith. I swear. Now listen. Bend closer. I will show you how to find the cave of the Corsair. Here. Here is the key to the court. When Darouge had finished, I put the parchment in my pocket, stuffed the candle, tried to make the old man a little more comfortable, but his body had gone limp. When I spoke, there wasn't any answer. The master of Barbarossa was dead. Here they come. <laughs> Valerie! Valerie, are you hit? Valerie, Valerie, it's no use. Oh, Harry! Monsieur, oh my God! Quickly, let go! Mario, Mario, do you hear me? Tell your boss to stop shooting. I've got everything under control. Harry! Mario, Mario, it's all right. I've disarmed him. You can go. The big Sudanese was dying as he brought his rifle butt against the back of my skull. But all the same, it was a blow that knocked me colder than a witch's kiss. When I came to, the brightness of day hurt my eyes. I closed them again, quick. The world was rocking underneath me. It took a minute or two to realize that I was tied, hand and foot, draped across the back of a camel. The smell of salt air was mixed with the smell of camel, and I saw the dark blue of the Mediterranean curving to the left. The Bedouins halted and dismounted. My wrists and ankles were unbound, and I was led to the head of the column. Mario Marteau stood there, and beside him was Valerie Darouge. Good morning, Harry. Did you sleep well? Mario, why have I been tied up? I kept my part of the bargain, didn't I? Did you? Old Darouge was holding me prisoner when you attacked. I broke out and forced him to give me the chart showing where the treasure of Barbarossa is hidden. I have it here in my pocket. Well, it's, it's gone. You have it. Of course. Well... I didn't fail, did I? And I once thought you were a man, but I loved you. 
animal. <laughs> Valerie. <laughs> Mario, those men over there, what are they what are they digging? A hole for you, Harry. But why? Why? Where's El Sikina? Where is he? Bring me to him. And you are supposed to be so clever. Of course. I should have guessed a long time ago. You are El Sikina. Who else? May you both burn in torment. All in good time, mademoiselle. First, that is the matter of the directions. Accord, mademoiselle. I told you I do not know, and if I did, I'd die before I tell you. Mario, I know. You? I'll tell you for a price. Price? Set Mademoiselle Darouge and myself free in Algiers. That's not much to ask. No. If this is not one of your little it's tricks... It's no trick. I will set you both free after we find the treasures, not before. Okay, okay. Now give me the map. We followed the broken coastline, and later that day, as the sky grew gray and dust devils danced, we reached the place. An old Bedouin remained with Valerie on the beach as I led them into a narrow break in the rocks, a break that widened into a, an enormous cabin. Their flashlight beams danced about and picked out a number of copper chests, green with age and corrosion. No doubt about it, we'd found it. It's the cave of the Corsairs. No, no, They're empty. Darouge must have taken most of it, but here's one chest, Mario, filled to the top. Look. Look, look, it's gold dust. A hundred million francs worth, at least. It's been left here to escape the tax collector. The rest of it. The rest of it. Well, souls spent, of course. Oh, they've... They've they found something. Yes, evidently. <laughs> it's wine, Mario. Look, sacramental wine in sealed flagons. Wine taken off the galley, hidden over 400 years ago. Well, Mario, I've kept my word, haven't I? Don't you think I should get a small share? Hassan! Ahmed! Take this dog out! Stand guard over him and the woman! We huddled on the beach in the lee of a sheltering rock, Valerie, our guards, and I. The mounting surf crashed on the narrow beach. The sky sagged like a wet circus tent. And two of the guards stared enviously at the revelry in and about the cave. The third, more devout, scowled. Keep away. What's wrong, old girl? You're shivering. Do not touch me. Two of our guards are leaving. That is for the cave. <laughs> the others staggering around, lying about the sand. They all drink enough. What the devil? A chest of gold dust. The only one that's left. Those four scoundrels are taking it out. What do you think they would do? Leave it there? But they're, they're reeling. They don't know where they're going. Hey, guard! Gini! Those men with the chest! They're too near the breakers. They're drunk. Call Mario. Where is he? Get them back. My mark. Part of that's mine. Hey, Mario. Oh. <laughs> Your bloody pieces of gold are oh. gone. Taken by the sea. There's the chest. Judas is carrying. Rolling over and over in the breakers. The yellow dust swallowed up. Easy, <laughs> easy. Easy, honey. Here comes Mario. You. You lie. Peter Shannon! Mario, Mario, no, no, no. What's the matter? Don't shoot me. Don't shoot me. I should know. It would be a trick. I kill her. Mario Macho collapsed, his pistol falling from his hand as he fell. Look at them. All of them. The whole gang lying around. 
<laughs> Incredible. What are you going to do? Take you back to Algiers with me. Then let's go. Those time won't sleep forever. Relax, sweetheart. They will. What? They will. Your grandfather put that wine there himself. He told me so before he died. What do you mean? It was for the refreshment of all who might come upon the treasure in his absence. It's a fine old vintage, dear. Laced with poison. <laughs> returns in just a moment. saved her life, and all she had to say to that was goodbye. Not so long for now, and remember, if you don't want to work for your living, don't bother about buried treasure. You may have to dig for it. Thank you for listening, and thanks as well to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.